Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Centuries and Saints. This is Scott Matson, your host for this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, before we get into our episode today, a quick note. Uh, it has been a while since I posted an episode. The reason for that uh, is that my wife and I, we recently moved from our home in Southern Oregon to a new place, Tulsa, Oklahoma. We both started new jobs and God led us here. And so in addition to moving and starting new jobs, I have also been very, very busy with seminary, buried up to my head in Greek. So if you have ever experienced that, then you'll know what I'm talking about. But I am really glad to be back, and I'm really excited to be recording and uploading new podcast episodes. There is a lot in the works here for centuries and saints. So thanks again for joining me. Now, this is episode six of season one, and we have been looking at the patristic era of the church, the church fathers. Okay, so basically from the time that the apostles died until about 451, somewhere in there. Okay, different scholars have different ways of measuring the times of the seasons of the church, but that's a general idea. Okay, so we are looking at the era that took place after the apostles, but before the medieval church. Today, we will be talking about church councils. Okay, now what is a church council? Right, well, to see the answer to that, we need to go back, number one, to scripture. Okay, so in Acts chapter 15, Uh, we see the very first church council. Now, what was going on there is that the apostles were assembled in Jerusalem uh, for a very important meeting because there was something going on uh, in the church in the times of the New Testament that's easy to miss uh, for us today as modern readers of Scripture. But there was something going on, a huge issue, namely tension between Jews and Gentiles. So as you may or may not be aware, the majority of the very earliest Christians, the first people to get saved, most of them were Jews. Okay, so most of them were Jewish, and they had come out of their Judaism and embraced Jesus as Messiah. Now, when I say come out of Judaism, I don't mean they had forsaken everything Jewish. I simply mean that they had embraced Jesus as their Messiah and as God's promised salvation. But what started to happen, especially with the Apostle Paul and his ministry, is he began to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And so the question then became, do Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be full members of the church community? In other words, we know that God has saved Jews. They've come to Jesus. They've been given the Holy Spirit. They've spoken in tongues. They've done these things. But when Gentiles get saved, do they have to become Jewish in order to become Christians? So in order to be full members of the covenant community, the church, do Gentiles have to become Jewish? Now, for the first Christians, the Jewish Christians, it seemed the answer should be yes. Because as you know, in Old Testament times, the nation of Israel was God's covenant people. And for someone to become part of the covenant community, if they were a male, they had to receive circumcision. They had to go through certain rituals and certain things in order to become Jewish. 
And so it would have made sense for the earliest Christians who were Jewish to think that, well, that was going to continue. Yes, you have to believe in Christ, but in order to be a full member of the covenant community, you also have to become Jewish. You have to receive circumcision. That was a massive issue in the early church. And by the way, that is the issue that is being dealt with in the entire book of Galatians. Okay, so this was a huge deal, very important issue that had to be resolved. Now, in Acts chapter 15, we read there that the church decides that no, Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. They do not have to become Jews in order to be full members of the covenant community of the church. And they realized that God poured out his Holy Spirit on the Gentiles because as you read the book of Acts, you see that those early Gentiles who got saved, one thing that they all had in common is they would speak in tongues. And that served as a sign to the Jewish apostles that God was saving the Gentiles in the same way he was saving the Jews through faith in Christ alone, not by becoming Jewish. So this very first church council that we see back in Acts chapter 15 made a decision on this incredibly important and at times divisive topic. And that's what church councils throughout history have done, starting with Acts chapter 15 and on into the early ecumenical church councils, four of which we will look at on this episode. This is what church councils do. Okay, they come together and they believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that they decide matters of doctrine for the church definitively. There have been many church councils throughout the last two millennia of the church. This morning, we're only going to look at four, four that are very, very important. Number one, we will look at the Council of Nicaea. Secondly, the Council of Constantinople. Third, the Council of Ephesus. And then finally, the Council of Chalcedon. And we're just going to do a very, very brief overview of each one of these. Okay, so first of all, the famous Council of Nicaea. This took place in the year 325 AD. For a little bit of historical context, this took place during the reign of the Roman Emperor Constantine. So what was the issue in Nicaea? Well, there were a lot of things going on, but the primary issue in the Council of Nicaea is that there was a bishop in the early church named Arius. And Arius began to teach a doctrine which said that Jesus is not fully God that he was a created being. Now, that kind of teaching is still around today in groups such as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who claim to be Christian groups, but they are not. But that was Arius, okay? That Arianism, that was the name of his teaching, okay? And, and so the church came together to think through and pray through this issue, to search the scriptures, and to make a decision, as they believed, being led by the Holy Spirit on this issue, Okay, and at the first council of Nicaea in 325 AD, with hundreds of church bishops, they came together and they roundly condemned Arius. They denounced Arianism, they condemned Arius as a heretic, and they codified, they reaffirmed an orthodox understanding of the deity of Jesus and the reality of the Trinity. Okay, so they said Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Okay, so the Nicene Creed heavily emphasized the deity of Jesus. And at the very end of this creed, there was a list of anathemas, or curses, which denied and denounced the heresy 
of Arianism. Okay, so this first Council of Nicaea, it's a famous creed and fundamentally important in the history of the church. Okay, the, the importance of this council really cannot be overstated. Okay, the church here decided and defended what the scriptures said, what the apostles had taught clearly, what Jesus himself made very clear, that Jesus is fully divine. He is God, one with and equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the first council of Nicaea, incredibly important. Then secondly, the council of Constantinople in the year 320, or pardon me, 381 AD. Okay, now Constantinople, uh, that was the ancient city of Byzantium, the modern-day city of Istanbul, Turkey, okay, and sort of the main seat of the Eastern or Greek church, what we know today as the Orthodox Church, capital O. Okay, so the Council of Constantinople in the year 381 AD affirmed that Jesus is fully human. Now, this is kind of difficult sometimes for us moderns to understand. Uh, because again, with the rise of groups like I already mentioned, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, as well as other religions, the battle that the church has faced in our times and in the last 150 years or so has been the battle for Jesus's deity, okay? reaffirming that Jesus is God. He is not a created being. Okay? Jesus is the creator. He is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, again, That was dealt with at Nicaea with the heresy of Arianism. But one of the first heresies that the church ever faced, and we read about this in Paul's letter to the Colossians, we read about it in the letter of 1 John, there was a group known as the Gnostics, okay? And their theology, their belief developed more fully in the second century, but there were traces of it in the New Testament. And they said that, look, Physical matter is bad, it's evil. This is based on Greek dualism and philosophy. And they said, therefore, if Jesus had actually come in the flesh, he would have been bad, he would have been evil. Okay, and so these Gnostics denied that Jesus actually truly came in flesh as a human being. This, by the way, is why the Apostle John, in his book, 1 John, wrote that if anyone denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh... He is Antichrist. He does not have the Father. And so the Council of Constantinople, they affirmed that Jesus is fully human. Okay, so fully, truly God, and also fully and truly human. Okay, very, very important. Uh, Third, the Council of Ephesus. This took place in the year 431 AD. And again, Ephesus, you'll recognize that. Paul's letter to the churches in Ephesus called Ephesians. Okay, much of church history and biblical times took place in and around Ephesus. This council affirmed that Christ is a united person. What does that mean? Okay. So, as Christians, as Orthodox Christians, we believe that Jesus, again, is both fully, truly God and both fully, truly human. So, there's the divine nature and the human nature in Jesus. What this council affirmed is something called the hypostatic union, where we believe that these two natures, the human and the divine, were truly unified in one person. In other words, Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua, he was a person, one person. Okay, so there wasn't, you know, the God part of him 
completely separate from the human part of him, like two people in one body. Okay, no, he was a united person. Now, how this worked in the incarnation, it's a mystery. We don't fully know. This council of Ephesus very importantly affirmed uh, that Jesus was one person, two natures, divine and human, fully God, fully man, but they were unified somehow uh, in, in God's way of doing things. They were unified and Jesus was one person. Okay, and then the fourth and final council, which we'll look at on this episode, was the Council of Chalcedon. And that took place 20 years after Ephesus in the year 451 AD. Okay, and this council affirmed that Jesus was both human and divine in one person. Okay, so again, this affirmed both the deity and the humanity of Jesus dwelling within the one person of Jesus. Okay, so where Ephesus had said, Yes, Jesus is one person. Chalcedon reaffirmed that both the human and the divine existed in that one person. Now, a little bit of a quote from the Council of Chalcedon. They said this, quote, We all, with one voice, confess our Lord Jesus Christ, one and the same Son, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, acknowledged in two natures, without confusion— without change, without division, or without separation. The distinction of two natures being in no way abolished because of the union, but rather the characteristic property of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person. Okay, so brief summary, what that means then is that at Chalcedon, they made a distinction between Jesus' deity and his humanity, but they did not make a separation. Big difference. I'm going to quote and use an example here from the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, one of my theological heroes. And R.C. Sproul made a great point. He said, if I make a distinction between your head and your body, I've not done you any harm. However, if I separate your head from your body, well, I've killed you. I've done you great harm, right? So there's a difference between distinction and separation. So Chalcedon recognized that Jesus' divine nature and his human nature are distinct, but they are not separated, okay? They are truly united in the one person of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. Okay, so that is a brief overview of these four church councils, these four big councils that took place in the early church. Before we leave, before we wrap up this episode, I want to look briefly, a little bit more in-depth, once again, at the First Council of Nicaea. Okay, so back to Nicaea. Again, where uh, they affirmed, the church affirmed the deity, the full, complete, and true deity of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this council uh, was called by Emperor Constantine. It was the very first ecumenical church council called, if you don't count the book of Acts, And again, its purpose was to resolve certain issues in the church, the biggest one being the heresy of the Bishop Arius, and to bring uniformity to the church in both doctrine and practice. Okay, this council began on May 20th, 325, and came to a conclusion on June 19th of the same year. So it was about a month long. Now, some people criticize this, and some people believe that Constantine, the emperor, was not really concerned with the purity and rightness of the historic Christian faith so much as he was concerned with division within his empire. 
Okay, so many people look at this and say Constantine called this council uh, and had more to do with his desire for political unity and power in the empire rather than for true orthodoxy within the church. Now, I tend to agree with that as well. Constantine claimed to have been converted as a Christian, uh, yet the circumstances surrounding his conversion and the fruit in his life thereafter makes that claim, in my opinion, uh, dubious can't prove anything, but that's my opinion. So I do believe that Constantine probably was more concerned uh, with unity and power in his empire rather than with true Christian orthodoxy. But be that as it may, God still used this council and that emperor for his purposes and for his glory. Okay, so again, at Nicaea, they accomplished a few things. An orthodox Christology. Again, this council affirmed the deity of Jesus and firmly denied the heresy of Arianism. Secondly, the first part of the very famous Nicene Creed was established. Third, they established a uniform observance for the date of Easter. And then fourth, uh, was also the promulgation of early canon law. And canon law is uh, that law, those rules, which pertain to church leadership, how churches are run, etc. in the Catholic Church. Now, this council was a very important step for the church and proved to be very important historically. Again, the Nicene Council and the creed that came from it was used greatly by God to help set up a standard against uh, the enemy of souls, who was trying to bury the church under a pile of heresies and false teachings. And so this council and its creed proved to be something of a bulwark, a dam, so to speak, to help uh, stop those muddied waters. That is a basic overview of the councils of Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. So I'm going to read a quote now from the late Dr. Bruce Shelley, a phenomenal church historian, wrote an incredible book, which I highly recommend, called Church History in Plain Language. And Bruce Shelley summed up the work of these church councils in this fantastic quote. He said, quote, So against Arius, the church affirmed that Jesus was truly God, and against Apollinarius, that he was truly man. Against Eutychus, it confessed that Jesus' deity and humanity were not changed into something else, and against Nestorius, that Jesus was not divided, but was one person. End quote. Okay, that's a fantastic way to sum this up. Again, these councils were used, I believe, by the Holy Spirit to help establish doctrinal boundaries that were in line with what God has revealed to us in scripture. And that as long as we are in a church community and worshiping in a church community that falls within these historic boundaries, we can know with confidence that we are believing in and worshiping the true Jesus of the scriptures, our true Lord and Savior. What I want to do now is I want to read the Nicene Creed to you, and then we will wrap the episode up. So the Nicene Creed says this, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. 
He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. So that is the Nicene Creed with a slight Roman Catholic modification, uh, which maybe we'll get into in a further episode, but um, that's not the most important thing right now. So that is an overview of these five church councils, Acts 15, and then the four councils that took place in the 4th and 5th centuries, respectively. So thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Centuries and Saints. I look forward to being with you again next time, where we'll be talking about monasticism during the patristic age of the early church. So I would ask you, please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Give us a rating, write us a review, subscribe and follow. Really helps us out. Really appreciate that. And check out my website, scottwmatson.com. Matson is spelled M-A-T-S-O-N. There you'll find links to this podcast and other ones I've done, writings, uh, the book on Martin Luther that I released, as well as some musical projects I've been involved in. So love to have you stop over there and uh, drop me a line via email there on the website. So again, thank you so much for listening. And for Centuries and Saints, this is Scott Matson. Until next time, God bless you. Are your friends?